I, I always laughed when it was a controversy that he or Coppola or whatever were bad-mouthing Marvel movies because, like, what are the fucking odds they would like a Marvel movie? Like, <laughs> why would they like a Marvel movie? Like, yeah. they're, like, a hundred years old. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Spoiler Warning Podcast. This is review number 579 with a review of The Irishman. I'm Christopher Schneezy. And I'm Stephen Miller. And if you're joining us for the first time, the Spoiler Warning Podcast is a weekly film review program. Each week in the show, we're going to dive in, debate, discuss, and argue over the latest film releases coming to a theater near you. Um, this week, we are talking about a film that is coming to a Netflix near you um, later at the end of this month. Um, Netflix will be releasing, releasing Martin Scorsese's latest film, The Irishman. Um, we got to see it at a special SF film screening here in the city um, recently, so we are choosing to do that review this week. Um, but before we get through that, um, lately, uh, Martin Scorsese has been in the news for some comments that he's made during an interview where he said some... Um, he didn't necessarily say anything that bad about Marvel films, but the internet as a whole has sort of taken some umbrage with um, his comments um, saying that Marvel films aren't cinema. Um, he published an article in the New York Times about sort of like qualifying the statements he made. And uh, given that Martin Scorsese is now releasing a Netflix film with a runtime of three and a half hours, um, it mm. seems maybe fitting for us to kind of um, talk about uh, his qualifications on the nature of cinema <laughs> and uh, maybe talk about sort of um, some of the ideas that he brought up in this article um, before we get into talking about the film that he is releasing. Yeah. Um, so basically, yeah, he, um, he he didn't mean to, to necessarily down-talk Marvel films in general, but he did talk about the fact that um, the world of cinema we are in now is mostly sequels, reboots, and films that uh, don't have uh, risk or... Um, don't have like weight to what's happening in Just them. Just wait till the Jumanji sequel about the Risk <laughs> board game comes out. <laughs> but yeah, basically his complaint is that filmmakers in general have to appeal to white audiences and that little small films that people want to make can't necessarily be made because people have to build their projects towards feeding an empire of these sequels and these large um, running franchises instead of making little darlings that they can release into the world that little people will see. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's sort of the basics of what um, he's kind of saying. W what did you think about his comments, Stephen? Yeah, so I think... I, I mean, I mostly agree with his take. Like, if you watch the big movies from the 70s, like, you remember Scorsese became one of the biggest directors ever, right? And you go back and watch, like, Mean Streets or Taxi Driver or Raging Bull. It is amazing how much they trust the audience to sit and enjoy a film that is not going anywhere yeah. at the moment, you know? That level of, like, I am going to watch what the director did I'm going to enjoy this character and I'm going to reserve my judgment till the end of the movie. Like that doesn't really exist anymore. It does. Like you and I have a whole podcast where we talk about tons of movies like that. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. But it doesn't exist in the movies that are expected to make money camp. Right. Yeah, like yeah. it's usually the other ones. Now the ones that like did just well enough to justify their existence, but nobody thinks they're going to get rich off of them. Yeah. Like, like in this past year we had either a Marvel films or, or, or a Star Wars film every single month the entire year. Yep. We had one Ad Astra this mm -hmm. year. <laughs> exactly. And like you compare Ad Astra to a movie like Mean Streets, and it's like Ad Astra feels like a Michael Bay movie compared to that. Like 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 you're 
that style of just like let's have a kind of abrasive movie where we watch people just be people that is mostly gone right yeah and i think in scorsese's article he's pretty even-handed about that about like i'm talking about the kind of movie that i grew up in that i started doing the thing that meant a lot to me he he puts value statements on them that i don't agree with necessarily like these are the ones that revealed something about a person i think all sorts of movies can reveal things like it doesn't have to be that style but i get what he's lamenting right like he feels like there used to be room for a filmmaker to take risk and there was trust that like they're going to maneuver you into a place you want to go and audiences will buy that and now like you know we always joke about civil bro right that's kind of like one of the canonical like everybody loves the captain america movies but they're not really risking anything like we know where they're going to start where they're going to end they look and feel the same way when is the last time you really felt like challenged by a marvel movie there's great things about them like diversity there's like they're opening alleys that scorsese never did you know like female heroes stuff stuff like that but they are not they're not difficult in the way that like 70s cinema was difficult so I, i think it's a valid point I don't think he's 100% right to pick a word like cinema and be like, that is what I define it to be and nothing else. But his point is well taken. Like, if you only watch the top 10 grossing films of a year, you would not see many emotionally difficult, challenging things. If you watch the top critically acclaimed movies, it's a totally different ballgame. But I think he's talking about the world of funding and the world of like, what gets made and why. So I I don't mind it. I, I think I mostly agree with him. But but I feel like he is he's taking like this intellectual high ground that I don't know if exists when you like I don't know adjust for inflation mm-hmm. <laughs> like metaphorically speaking because yeah. I, I feel like fil- the fil- like it was an event to go out to see a movie in the time where his early films were coming out yeah. right like that's the you thing. thought that train yeah. was gonna hit you. <laughs> But in all seriousness, though, like you got dressed up and you went out to the cinema the th- same way you would get dressed up and go out to the theater. And really, if if you go back and watch trailers for old films, I mean, like old films, it would be like the equivalent is if of if you watch the trailer for um, like Independence Day and they're like, oh, these people are over here, and then the aliens are gonna come, and then the hero's gonna go and install a virus in the ship, and you're gonna want to see what happens next, right? Like, mm-hmm. It's literally like if you watch old trailers. It's the it's like people say that new trailers are the entire plot and visually they give you parts from the entire film. But like if you go back and watch the old trailers, there was a fucking narrator basically reading what nowadays would be the Wikipedia article for the film Mm. to convince you to watch the film where this hero is going to like rise up and fisticuff the bad guy. Right. And, And I think that like it was a different process and i think that we are competing with so much in this world like i still honestly i get annoyed when it's hard for me to see a film to review because it's a film that's wildly popular and then suddenly all the showings are thrown like are are sold out because for the last nine years um you know since that's how long we've been doing this podcast or i've been doing the podcast like i've been seeing at least one or more films a week to talk about them to no one yeah. on we the internet. longer right? than that. We had like best of 2008, I feel like. Yeah, it, it, it just, we, we've been doing this forever, right? Yeah. And, and it's when suddenly we are having trouble scheduling it because there's a new James Bond. Like, I remember the first time that I pulled up to the local theater in San Marcos 
um, the weekend that uh, a new James Bond film came out, and there was not a single parking. Like I literally drove to the theater thinking I would just walk up and buy a ticket, and suddenly there were people parking in neighboring shopping malls and walking over to see this movie. And I was like, I guess I'm not seeing it today. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It just like it confused me because I'm so used to being sitting alone in a mostly empty theater. And now there's more and more packing people packing all the theaters all the time. And I feel like it's just a different time. Yeah. And yes, we like specifically with the Marvel films, we have seen a bunch of films where we're like, we know this character can't die because literally they showed the trailer for the following movie. (laughs) Like, before this movie started. So, yes, there's technically no stakes, but there's still emotional stakes. Like, in in Civil Bro, I have talked on this podcast ad nauseum about the, the scene where, like, Captain America is going to shove a shield, like, into Tony Stark's face. And I know that Tony Stark can't die in that moment where, like, Captain America is not going to shield bash him and kill him. But I feel the emotional weight between those two characters. And while I consciously know he can't die there... I feel like he could die there yeah. because the the characters sell it. And I, I don't know, there's something about, it's different times and I feel like you can't judge things in the same way. Yes, it's harder to make, fil- f- get, make films. It's, it's harder to make films. But I also feel like, like, I, like, so on the one hand, I get what he's saying because we are podcasters in a sea of podcasters, as I said, speaking to no one. And it's like, it's really hard for our podcast to get heard because there are 10,000 Walking Dead podcasts and 10,000 Game of Thrones podcasts and 10,000 Westworld podcasts. And there's so much content out there with so many people that want to see different stuff that like it's really hard for us to be able to bubble up. And if we were filmmakers, we would feel the same way. We might have a script sitting in our back pocket that we really, really want to make, but we can't sell it. And we need like to either self-fund it or borrow money to get it made and have it show in like one theater in LA <laughs> and then, or maybe send it off to a festival and hope it gets made. Yeah. I, I totally agree that it's hard to make the films you really, really want to make in a world where the studios only care about the bottom line. But I also feel like that doesn't take away from the, the good stuff that is in some of these films that are part of franchises and right. things like that. No, I, I, I agree. And I think it, I think he recognizes as much as I could possibly expect him to while still being Martin Scorsese. Because, like, I, I always laughed when it was a controversy that he or Coppola or whatever were bad-mouthing Marvel movies. Because, like, what are the fucking odds they would like a Marvel movie? Like, <laughs> why would they like a Marvel movie? Like, yeah. they're, like, a hundred years old. They ma- They made, like, three and a half hour epics about, like mobsters and stuff like why would they like captain america like yeah, yeah. Th- there's no reason they would like you mentioned the emotional tether and in things like uh civil war like see i had to think to use the right word for that movie <laughs> um in things like civil war like i have marvel fatigue i already have more trouble than i used to of like latching on to the emotions of these movies because i feel like kind of paint by numbers formula had taken place Imagine if you have been making movies for the last 45 years. Like, of course you're going to feel that way. Yeah, yeah. So I I feel like given all that, this is a remarkably non-combative issue where they're just saying things have changed. Different generations want different things. I don't latch on to the things that people are latching on to about these new movies, and that makes me feel bad. Like, I think that's completely, completely fine. And if we're being honest, like... 
Has a Marvel movie ever been in your top three of the year for the whole duration we've been doing this podcast? Top three? Yeah. No. But a Star Wars film has made top five. Yeah, I know. That's about <laughs> as close as they've come. So, but that's the thing. It's like Marvel yeah. sucks up all the oxygen. But when it comes to the actual craft that we remember, that we think about later, it's rarely up there. And so there's but, some disparity, right, between what it does in entertainment and what it does in lasting in your brain in a way that makes you want to praise it later. But but if I can play devil's advocate one more time, it, so he talks about film not having risk. Um but has there ever in the history of cinema been a cohesive effort to combine 22 films mm-hmm. to culminate in one crazy over a billion dollar grossing picture that brings together the entire world to have participated in 22 films or whatever it ended up being right. at the end? Like, that is insane. And yeah. yes, you can say that, like, there is one company that owns most of all of our theatrical going experiences, and you can complain about that all you want. But superhero films were god awfully terrible mm-hmm. before Iron Man. Yeah, I mean, so risk is the wrong word. Yeah, because yeah. they it, all took a chance on this genre, right? Yeah, yeah. It's I just I just think that like it's it's hard. Like Scorsese is very careful to say. It's not a matter of necessarily quality, but it's a matter of t- like he tries to say it's a matter of taste several times to not say mm-hmm. that he's he's not saying those are shitty movies. He knows that people have worked on it and like lots of people, blood, sweat and tears went into it. And that's all cool. He's just saying that like it's not the movies he grew up watching. And for that, it's hard for him to enjoy it. Yeah. But like there is something really, really amazing. Like it's still blo- like every once in a while I think back to watching Endgame and just think about like this is like a decade of my life. Yeah. Of watching film and it fucking pulled off something crazy at the end that really got me. And like, I don't know, there, it's, there is no, it is the like cinematic equivalent of Lost, right? Yeah. Where it's like every single person you know is talking about it. And there, there are films that like years later, everybody talks about and is remembers fondly or has blind spots that they're ashamed of not saying taxi driver. Um, <laughs> but, but there, there's you, you, we can't, we live in a different world. Now. Yeah. It, I know, it just seems crazy to me. So, so what I'm curious about is if Scorsese would think Star Wars, a new hope is cinema or not. Like, like, I want to know how he feels about the crowd pleasers of the era. You like, know? like, delete the past, or the, sorry, delete everything that came after the original. Like, the original starts to new franchises. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Like, I, I want to know because those I would say are not fundamentally different from the crowd pleasers of today, where they're they're action and they're sci-fi, and I don't think. Because I think when he says risk, what he means is discomfort. It's like yeah. you're risking the audience feeling alienated. That that is the thing that like he kind of prides himself in is like I'm gonna put the audience in a place where they don't know what is gonna happen, they don't know how they feel, and then I'm gonna bring them back. And I, I will fully admit that no Marvel movie has ever done that to me. Like I, the Joker did. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was talking to you today how Joker has a lower score than Terminator, <laughs> Dark Fate. Like yeah, which is clearly sad. these movies are not always being rewarded for doing the thing that puts you in an unpleasant situation. Yeah. Um, but it, but like it, it's true. I haven't had any Marvel movie feel difficult or abrasive or challenging in that sense. It's doing a different thing. It's a feat of 
engineering. It's a feat of they pulled that off, right? Yeah. And that's a magic trick, and that is, that's its own sort of entertainment, but it is a different kind. And I'm not going to put a value judgment on what kind is better, yeah. but I understand lamenting the other kind when the other kind is like what you toiled at for yeah. so long. And, and, and we have also talked to Scorsese's point about like, there are films that we saw at the Tribeca Film Festival last year, which still aren't out. And they were beautiful, great things that if we hadn't gone to the festival, we wouldn't even know existed. Mm -hmm. And there are some things that got dropped straight onto iTunes, which we probably still wouldn't know existed other than like our allegiance to some of the actors and actresses. Yeah, and these are the ones with famous actors and actresses, which is crazy. Like imagine how many didn't even have that, that we didn't even watch at the festival. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's, I, I, I get his point. I it's just hard for me sometimes. Like it's it's kind of like I started reading it. I I didn't read the article until after having seen <laughs> the Irishman. Let's and be I real, you didn't read it till five minutes before we recorded. <laughs> people don't want to know how the sausage is made, Stephen. <laughs> but but I think that it's one of those things where like I went in ready to just like I'm like I think like I I've I've told people after leaving the Irishman that I felt like publishing that article was a pre-defense of the Irishman. Like, Mm. it was him saying, like, okay, I made this three-and-a-half-hour-long, like, mobster epic that is really all about me and what I want to see in film Mm -hmm. and probably will not appeal to that many people. And I want to get my word out into the ether explaining that what I was making was a piece of cinema and that like, if you don't like it, it's because the world has changed away from being able to accept that. Um, And I think that having read through his, his article, I I feel like it's, I I feel like there's a little bit of both sides. (laughs) Sure. I'll I'll give you that. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, should we get into this review, Stephen? Yeah, let's do it. All right. We're going to take a listen to the trailer for the Irishman and then we're going to come back and give you a review. It's over. They're all gone. Frank, it's time. It's time you say what happened. Frank, I want you to meet my cousin, Russell Buffalino. Better watch. There's a lot of tough guys around here. Did he tell you? You're not afraid of tough guys, are you? I didn't think so. I was one of a thousand working stiffs until I wasn't no more. You got a good friend here. You don't know how good a friend you got. Russell, he took a shine to me right away. After a while, he started giving me little things to do. I know you read a lot of things about me. I just want to say I'm sorry. I know I wasn't a good dad. I know that. I know that. I was just trying to, to protect all yous. From what? You didn't see what I see, what I've been through. A friend of ours is having a little trouble. A friend at the top. Hi, Frank. This is Jimmy Hoffa. Glad to meet you. Big business and the government is on the attack. Do you want to be a part of this fight? A part of this history? Whatever you need me to do, I'm available. Only three people in the world have one of these, and only one of them is Irish. You know how strong I made you? I know things 
They don't know I know. He said that? You sure he said that? I'm worried nobody threatens Hoffer. I got records. I got tapes. They're gone. I had to put you into this thing. Sooner or later, everybody put here as a date when he's gonna go. I know how you feel, Frank. Trust me, I know how you feel. We'll bring you back after you get your car. So that was the trailer for Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. Um, it is basically the story of a... Um, it's, it's sort of the uh, history of what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. And yeah. it's, it really follows this one uh, Irishman. <laughs> yeah, Frank um, something. Who starts off... Sheeran. Uh, yeah, yeah. Ed Sheeran's uncle. Uh, Ed Sheeran's uncle, yeah. Um, or great-grandpa, <laughs> based on how old he looks at the end of the film. Um, but basically, it's about a man who kind of gets in with uh, the mob and makes his way into becoming sort of the um, personal bodyguard of Jimmy Hoffa and sort of follows uh, the rise and fall of Jimmy Hoffa and helps to try to hopefully explain um, what happened to Jimmy Hoffa, who, if you don't know, disappeared mysteriously in like 1975 or something like that. Um, Stephen Miller, what did you think of The Irishman? So... We watched this movie in the evening on a weeknight, which is difficult in a crowded theater because you are going to be there for three and a half hours in a crowd. You have to pee. You have to be up at six something in the morning the next day because you have a job with fucking <laughs> meetings and shit. Um, so this is, as you mentioned, like a, a kind of difficult ask for a movie. And while watching it, I'm going to say I only liked it quite a bit like i was like i enjoy this you only liked it quite a yeah, bit. yeah i only liked it quite a bit while i was watching it i was like i enjoy this but i'm tired also and this movie is really it is dragging things out this is a long slow movie that is like not afraid to take its time with scenes as the movie built to its ending it all kind of to it started to click a little bit more in this kind of link lettery way of it like being about time and like the <laughs> is it because you aged 12 years while you were yeah, watching no, it? Yeah, no, but it, 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 it I it will we'll talk about it more but I feel like this is the kind of movie that like you have to have spent a lot of time with the characters to feel the weight of kind of what he's trying to pull off with it. And this is one of those movies that like the more I let it sit with me that night, the more I liked it and liked it. And I feel like I really, really actually enjoy this movie. <laughs> um, so there's two kind of comparisons I want to make here. One, I think this is very much of a piece with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in that this is a famous director taking stock of the kind of movies he's been making his whole life and trying to give it a a funeral dirge in an era that is maybe no longer about those things anymore. So I think that's one. He does it very differently than Tarantino does it. He, <laughs> that's true. They do it in very different tempos, <laughs> but I think they are <laughs> accomplishing a similar thing. I, I don't think it's coincidence that they're both looking in like a similar era, actually, can, to... Can, can, can you, we, we should just stop for a second and think about the fact that like 
Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a long-ass movie. Yeah. This movie is fucking 45 minutes longer than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yep. <laughs> yeah, this is this is a long movie. <laughs> and and it does not have the pep that Tarantino's movie does that kind of like ushers you from scene to scene as if you're dancing, right? It's, yeah. it's a different thing. Um, the second thing I want to say, and I know this will mean very different things to you than it does to me. I think this is the first real mafia movie in a post-Sopranos world. And what I mean by that is, like, The Sopranos, what it does really well, pending taste, you know, pending personal opinion, is it is not a movie about the mafia, but it's a movie about the American life that just happens to be in the mafia, right? It's a movie about, like, existential dread, what it feels like to get older, what it feels like to become more irrelevant, the feeling of, like, your job pulling you away from your family and vice versa. And in in The Sopranos, the key idea, if I can do this without spoiling The Sopranos, is that, like, it almost doesn't matter who's going to live and who's going to die. Everyone is going to have the same shitty fate with only two options. Either you're going to get shot in the back of the head, (laughs) the world is going to cut to black and you're not going to know what happened, or you live long enough to become... (laughs) <laughs> Uncle Junior sitting in a nursing home watching birds, not remembering that he owned Jersey, right? Either like, you die a hero or you live long enough to, to see finish yourself. the Irishman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, like th- those are the two options in the Sopranos verse, basically. It's like either you're gonna die an unglamorous death that does not pay tribute to whatever you thought you built in your life. Yeah. Or you're gonna live long enough to rot in a prison cell or not remember who you were. And I think this movie is very much Scorsese reckoning with that kind of thing about like the stuff that you thought mattered in your life. These things that back in the Goodfellas days or whatever were going to be set to a soundtrack and going to be like cool and peppy and enjoyable are now just going to be like you kind of wasted your life while the people you loved and the actual family just kind of happened next to you and barely even got a minute of your thought. Right. And that's what I think this movie is, is about, like, realizing that the things you valued no longer are valuable and that the world is passing you by. And for the first two hours, at least of this movie, it is just that story that is dragging a little bit, that is like an old guy recounting, these are all the things I did and all the people I knew, and this is me being Forrest Gump, who was in everywhere at the right time, and like <laughs> all, all of that kind of thing. And I think it's all building to this kind of funeral dirge of like, none of this added up to anything, and what does life actually mean if I wasted all my time focusing on things that didn't matter? And there there's a meta element of this movie that I really like of like the director and all the actors are approaching the age now where we're not going to have them forever. And I very much think the last third of this movie is about reckoning with mortality. <laughs> and I, I think it's, it's interesting. I, I made, did I make a link letter reference yet? Probably not. Yeah. yeah you, you know. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah. You said like link later, which and then yeah. I followed up with the joke about watching the movie is like, yeah. 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 L- like link letter though. It, I think this is very much a movie that is like trying to talk about the passage of time and the way it feels like to get older and maybe not wiser, but more numb to all the things that used to matter to you. And I think it is very successful in that vein. I don't know that it had to be three and a half hours. <laughs> I know the emotion, the, the toll it had on me. I don't know if it would have worked if it had been a short movie. I feel like you kind of need to have like suffered with the character for a while in order to feel the weight of that. But I, I, I quite liked the sadness to it in the end. I think it's an, a very interesting 
complete thing that he built, even if I don't completely know what it's saying to me. Yeah. It, it is an interesting comparison to bring up Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because most of the praise that I was giving that film was me seeing the strings of Tarantino reflect upon his career um, and everything from the casting of people that have been in his old films and doing all sorts of this stuff felt like a work of genius mm-hmm. when watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, but that was also couched within a incredibly compelling story that beat by beat kept me on, on the edge of my seats, partly because, partly because it was all working towards one eventuality. Um, in this film, we also kind of have an eventuality we're, lead, we're working towards, which yeah. is the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah. But there's not um, really an assumption that the audience knows the details of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but but it's, it's, it's weird that while I can recognize the similarities there, it's like the simple on-paper similarities is where sort of my comparison of the two films um, stops. Uh, I... I, I had heard from somebody um, that you thought I would not like this film, mm-hmm. or I should say didn't like this film because I was sitting like four people away from you yeah. during the, the course of watching this film. Um, and that is an accurate statement. Yep. <laughs> um, I I did not care for The Irishman. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, if, if you can entertain me for a second, Stephen, I want to read a quote from Martin Scorsese's article. <laughs> Right. <laughs> which I read uh, 28 minutes ago. Um, but uh, it says, the pictures are made to satisfy the specific set of demands, and they are designed as uh, variations on a finite number of themes. They are sequels in name, but they are remakes in spirit, and everything in them is officially sanctioned because it can't really be any other way. Mm. And I feel like that sentence, which is in this article being attributed to Marvel films and the current state of cinema in general directly applies to this film Hmm. on so many levels. (laughs) I feel like everything from the style to like the, I don't want to just do a voiceover. So I'm going to create this narrative in which a guy is sitting in an old folks home reminiscing to the audience Mm -hmm. about his past. Like he's like within the narrative, he is being asked by people in his world questions which he will not answer but he is talking to us the audience there's also a scene later in the movie where de niro keeps bouncing between the character he's talking to and the audience i don't know if it's an accidental him looking at the camera which was not edited out and they just didn't have another take or if that's purposeful him trying to like flea bag his way (laughs) into Mm. communicating with the audience i don't know but uh but it's just a strange narrative to have this man who becomes the sort of bodyguard of jimmy hoffa kind of recount his his story to the audience throwing up all the titles of like this man's gonna die this way and all this stuff like it felt like somebody trying to do a scorsese mob film Hmm. in a way that like it didn't feel like it added anything like there have been films that i've seen where i'm like this is somebody trying to do a guy Ritchie film and it like it feels kind of annoying and i felt like watching this film it was like so you got the gang back together and got them to do a stuff but the story you're telling me it like the real problem i have with this film is i don't know a lot about jimmy hoffa other than the fact that he disappeared and at one point he was like the president of the teamsters union 
I don't, this film does nothing to teach me about the importance of the existence of the Teamsters. It does nothing to teach me about the importance of who Jimmy Hoffa was. It does nothing to teach me about really the importance of anything. Instead, I'm watching a series of actors who I recognize from other mobster things mm-hmm. be mobsters in this film. And like when Jimmy Hoffa's character is like, I need to get back to the top of the Teamsters. Like, why the fuck? Like, what? Like, when you watch Game of Thrones, you know why somebody wants to sit on the Iron Throne. Mm-hmm. Like, you understand that. Like, you get the power that comes from sitting on the Iron Throne and rolling, r- ruling over the Seven Kingdoms or whatever. And, like, you, you, you understand what they're going for and why they want that power. And you understand the history between those characters. I mean, you've had ten seasons or whatever the fuck it was. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you've had all this time to sit with them and learn all this stuff. And while this film is three and a half hours long, that's not long enough to make me care about who these people are and what they did, but it's also too long for me to enjoy learning about them Mm. when I don't get anything from this experience. Like, there is nothing about this story that tells me why this story needed to be told. And I did go Wikipedia shit to figure out why we know what happened to Jimmy Hoffa, and it turns out we we have hearsay about stuff. So we have a character who ends the film... Telling the only people who could like so okay, back up the 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 Ted Bundy movie with mm-hmm. um what's his nuts yeah, um, extremely vile incredibly yeah. wicked um what annoyed me about that film is there is a confession at the end of the film to a character who never told that confession to anybody and it's completely made up artifice for telling the story mm-hmm. because we want to believe that he confessed to somebody even though he maintained his innocence the entire time of the history of his life or whatever, yep. right? That pissed me off because I was like, no, you can't just have a character have this interaction that there is no record of in existence and then tell that as your version of a narrative. This film does both. The character says, nah, I'm not going to tell you. And then the director shows us something, which is just hearsay from a character who's not even in his movie. And it just, it feels like such a waste of time. I, I believe that Scorsese is obsessed with Jimmy Hoffa and thinks this is a great story to tell. But the problem is, he made a film that requires you to be in his head to care about the story. There, the, the things that you're bringing up about the emotional side of if you d- devote yourself, your life to one thing, you forgo the relationship to your family members, you may have all these other problems because you've chosen this one life. and I, That stuff is there. But the problem is I can't live this long through a film where that is all I get from it. Mm. You need to tell a compelling story to me. And there, like, there are scenes where people are arguing over a fucking apology, and I don't even remember who crossed who and who's mad at who. Like, it's the equivalent of somebody stepping on their shoe and then being pissed for life, and then someone ends up gone. Like, it just... it. See, I, I feel like that is the movie at its most Sopranos, basically, is like... And, and, that's the and thing, you had a problem with that. The The... I laughed when you compared this to The Sopranos earlier because what people may or may not know on this podcast, because I don't remember if we ever talked about it on air, is you watched The Sopranos late in life and you wrote uh, a large post about how it might be one of the best shows that's ever been on television. Mm-hmm. And I was like, fuck, now I got to go binge watch all of The Sopranos <laughs> to know what the fuck's going on because 
I trust your opinion, <laughs> or at least at the very least, I wanted to. I see trusted your. Yeah, I trusted. No, no, but 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 I was like, I was like, oh fuck, I was never going to watch this because I'm not that interested in mob stories. Mm-hmm. But I was like, fuck, if this show's really this good, and also you compared it to films or shows that I think are some of the best shows that have been on television, yeah. so I was like. Even if I disagree, I need to see this. And I hated The Sopranos. Mm. <laughs> so that's why I laughed when you compared it to The Sopranos. Because I was like, probably. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is probably the same stuff. Um, but I, I just feel like this story... Nothing in Scorsese's story dictates why this story deserved to be told. And in the end... I was wholly unsatisfied with any revelation or any sort of uh, beginning or end to a character because the film, in its three and a half hour runtime, never took the time to make me care about anybody in the story. Mm. So, I don't know. Yeah, that that's interesting because I it makes me feel, again, like my on-paper comparison to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood should be deeper than that because that is a reaction some people had to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood too, right? Yeah. It's like, why should I care about this historical event that didn't touch me, didn't mean anything to me, and the main characters that are involved might not even be real? Like, what is the point of all of this? And it, I, I don't have a good answer. Like, a, a few things I want to answer. One is that you know, who was Jimmy Hoffa? Why did he matter? I don't know that I care literally about that any more than I care literally about what happened to him and whether the story of this movie is accurate or not about about the truth. I feel like this is a movie about looking back and this someone I forget who wrote that this is a movie about like hearing your grandpa like sit down and tell you a tall tale where you can't really believe half of what he's saying. Yeah. But what you are getting from it is his perspective on the world and how the world was and how he justified himself in the world. And I feel like what Hoffa, like what uh, Pacino's Hoffa here represents is this kind of like the charismatic figure that draws you to them. And he's like, he's everything that Frank isn't in this movie, basically. Like Frank is kind of a gruff guy. Early in the movie, we watch him find out that his daughter was maybe accidentally brushed by someone at a grocery store and he like marches over and curb stomps the guy, right? This is a person who's very serious, very like, you're going to respect me. You can respect my authority. That is my personality. End of story. And I think Hoffa comes in as a kind of like counterbalance to that of like what happens when someone has charisma and charm and manages to like take the world by storm. And I think like what is interesting here to me is not, the history of these characters, but it's how these people bounce off each other, which makes future events more meaningful or muddied or more like, like, I, I feel like this is a movie that is like a very somber riff on the same thing Scorsese has been doing forever, where before, for the most part, you don't see regret or sorrow or sadness. You get a little bit, right? Like, Ray Liotta, like old Ray Liotta or De Niro at the end of Raging Bull or something of people who are like used to be important and now aren't, right? Yeah. Kind of end, end of Wolf of Wall Street even, right? Like you get people who like were in their prime and then you see the future where it's like the kind of hollow, more vapid version of their life later. Yeah, um, yeah. I feel like this movie is like so much is infused with that, the hollowness of it all. And it's really trying to hammer home this feeling of like, 
what was my life, what was my country, these people I was following, this duty that I felt obligated to, like, what did it all mean in the end when, without spoiling anything, like, the course that my life went on would eventually make me kind of renege on everything that I thought mattered to me at another point in my life. Yeah. Um, and there was something about it where it, the the length and the slowness makes it be a kind of, like, meditative slow burn for me where I, I fully, a thousand percent understand, like, if you're not on board for this movie, that slow burn is going to be a slow fucking burn. Yeah. <laughs> and the movie is not going to give you enough of like, oh, huh, I didn't know that about Robert Kennedy to like make it be worth your while, right? Yeah. But I felt like I slipped into a groove where I really enjoyed what he was doing. And I think that feeling of sorrow and basically the last like half hour of this movie, I feel like wouldn't have worked on me if not for the length of time that I spent watching this. But I want to bring up something that is not intellectual at all that I think we will both maybe have more to agree on, which is de-aging. <laughs> and how how did you feel about de-aging in this movie? <laughs> um, I, I feel like my my feelings are sort of what they were at the beginning of our Terminator Dark Fate conversation. Mm-hmm. We're like, well, <laughs> never mind, it's the opposite of that. <laughs> oh, great. Because in Terminator Dark Fate, I was like... I was like, yeah, yeah, it's cool. We should do this all the time. Like, it's totally <laughs> fine. And I feel that in this, I mean, part that's another fucking weird thing about this movie. Like, I'm sorry to get back into complaints, and stuff, but it's mm-hmm. part of your question is that, like, they're de-aging them like 10 years. Yeah. Like, it's not... Un- this, we're they're not- all Benjamin Button, basically. <laughs> they, they... And they're not de-aged for that long, it feels like. Like, mm-hmm. pretty soon, they're just old again. And it it, it's, it feels like... It's so weird to go through all the work to de-age them to tell a story that honestly does not span that much time. Like, there is never a te- – like, like, they're not doing body swapping where, like, there is a younger person playing young De Niro in the early days, like, before he comes back from the war or whatever it was. Like, it's it's like he's just always – 10 years younger than he is now and then at some point they make him 10 years older too (laughs) yeah i like i think the irony is they should have done what they did with de niro and godfather part two of just cast someone else to be the young version and play side by side instead um i found the de-aging incredibly distracting at the beginning of this movie and i think so i'm gonna there are three great performances here that are classic scorsese people you've got de niro you've got pesci you've got Pacino is not classic Scorsese, but, you know, he's been ma- mafia adjacent forever. So yeah. I'm, I'm going to nominate him into the there, Scorsese crowd. <laughs> there's one point in this movie where I'm pretty sure Pacino is doing a Bernie Sanders impression. Yeah. Oh, oh, there are some similarities for sure with the <laughs> Teamster Hoffa. And the- but it's just like he's doing like he's doing the hand motions and he's like. Wah, 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 wah. Yeah. It, it felt very, 5% very close. 5% or the 1%. That's what he was doing. <laughs> there was totally a scene where he did that. And I was like. Someone else has got to be saying this, right? 1% of all fish in the back of cars. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of became JFK, too. <laughs> anyway, um, so I, 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 I love... We sell to the unions. <laughs> Not because it is IFA, but because it is half. <laughs> um, so anyway, I think they're, they're all great here. De-aging-wise... I think Pacino makes it out the best among the three of them. I feel like, I feel he's like being the less least de-aged. Yeah, yeah, whatever they're doing to him is subtle enough that I'm okay with it, and his character is already a little quirky too. So like it, it, it works for me. Like Pacino yeah. did not distract me at all. De Niro, 
after the first 10 minutes, I'm okay with him. Like, yeah. there are things like his eyes feel wrong because he has kind of like cloudy eyes. And I feel like they were trying to make him bright blue in a kind of like Polar Express way <laughs> that I didn't vibe with. But I, I, I got on board for De Niro pretty quickly, yeah. you know? Pesci is awful. Joe Pesci, man, that is just like Smeagol the whole that, movie. Yeah, there's some Gollum ass <laughs> shit going yeah. on. I don't like, I feel like I didn't really see Joe Pesci in this movie. I mean, he's a diminutive man. Yeah. But like, I just feel like there was something extra about him that made him look goblin yeah. That one really didn't work. And, and, Often it was okay because he's seen mostly in like a dark restaurant or whatever. Yeah. But there were scenes where we just are seeing him in the light of day. And I'm like, how did you all decide this is like the representation you want? Yeah, yeah. And you're old already. Like, why not just be Joe Pesci? <laughs> uh, like, I get De Niro because I, I know it is kind of interesting. They only de-aged a little bit. So he still moves like an old man. And that kind of uncanny valley is there. Yeah. There's a the scene where he days. runs out like to shoot a guy yeah and i was like man what if he fell <laughs> but i i do think the combo of the the ostensible age that they make the character look and just the way it's filmed the the 50s time versus present day in the nursing home like i think there's a stark enough contrast there that i get why he did it like yeah. I, I understand like you're trying to see like two people looking very different it's the opposite of Danny in the Terminator movie where like we see apparently 30 years in the future and they look fucking exactly the same with cornrows yeah. you know <laughs> this is like you are seeing a difference in the way they look but man Pesci oh I would have loved to just see the Joe Pesci performance without de-aging applied to it yeah just make him be a little bit older and then when we cut to the time that is probably a spoiler to say what the time is, but it's like in between modern day and the original beginning of the movie, just like make him a tiny bit older and don't use CG for it. And it's yeah. going to be fine. He was an old man when you met him. It's okay. He's a little bit older now. We, we, we talked about it when we left the theater, but there's one scene in particular that involves a bunch of them play, um, playing bowling. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they are bowling and they're in a bowling alley and it's almost like the tracking isn't even correct. Like it, mm. it looks like there is a stark difference between the heads and the collars of their neck. Yep. <laughs> and it, it, it yeah. really took me out of the it film. It is very uncanny valley, and th like that was one of the worst scenes for me in terms of the de aging CG. Again, by the time you're maybe forty minutes into this movie, they're close enough to caught up that the de aging has become pretty minor and it isn't a big deal anymore. Yeah. But when you're first asked to care about all these people, like that is a tough pill to swallow. Yeah. And yeah. I wish he hadn't done it. it. It it brings it into Hugo land more than it needs to, yeah. I think. The really the really funny thing to me too is uh De Niro's playing an Irishman. If you're fine with him just playing an Irishman, why are you not fine with him just playing a young guy? <laughs> Like, if you don't care, if you don't care on the one side of thing, why, why do you, I, I don't know, it just seems like he's willing to stretch, uh, the, you know, the lever, level of reality for mm -hmm. other things in the story, but doesn't, like, he's like, no, 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 the I, aging, I when, we have the technology now. When's the last time you saw modern day De Niro? Imagine him playing, like, a 25-year-old man without anything being applied. I don't know. That would, that'd be tough, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I think the right call would have been to cast someone else to play young him. Yeah, yeah. And I get he didn't want to do it because he wants the movie to be like a boyhood type thing where, like, you are seeing that person over the years. So, like, I, I get philosophically why he thought he had to do this, but I just think 
that is going to really make this movie not yeah. age well, ironically, because yeah. cut to five years from now, and I think it's going to be unbearable, the CG but, in this movie. I mean, it really doesn't matter, though, Stephen, because like, my prescription changed three times over the course of watching the film. So That's by true. the end, even if it was the same exact guy with the same exact makeup, yeah. I would have thought he looked older. It, it looked different. Um, <laughs> I did One thing I thought was funny is so everyone is being de-aged in this movie, right? They're all old people who are made to look a little bit younger, except there's one guy, you probably won't know him, but he's an actor in like every HBO show. His name's Dominique Lombardazzi. He plays Tony Salerno. So he's the guy that like, he's someone who doesn't like Jimmy Hoffa in this movie and he has some power. And there's a scene where someone says it is what it is and that's coming from this person. Yeah, yeah. That guy is like young and dressing up like an old man in the 60s. Like even like... When it was just a random actor, they still were like, no, we're going to fuck with their age. Like, yeah. he, he couldn't just cast age-appropriate people to play these characters. <laughs> that that made me laugh. Um, I did like seeing the kind of greatest hits of Scorsese slash Mafia movie people. Like, you know, you, you had that trio of uh, De Niro, Pesci, and Pacino. But then you also had, like, Harvey Keitel showed up. And he's not even in it very long. I kind of feel like he was just there so they could say Harvey Keitel was in the movie. Yeah. People who I wouldn't have thought being in mafia movies, like Ray Romano, I kind of really enjoyed <laughs> in this movie. Um, yeah, I don't know. There, it, it was fun to see all the actors get together. And yeah. that was kind of a thrill that it shared with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood of, like, all right, you're just, like, having a blast with, like, the biggest crew of people you can muster. Yeah, but it just, once again, it feels like all those people wanted to be in the Scorsese movie, not like, man, this is a really good story that yeah. I want to tell. And I think that, like, too, going back to other things, like, you watch a film like uh, like in, in, in Casino, mm -hmm. like, learning about how the casino works is fucking entertaining, right? right? Like, just seeing the inner workings of everything and getting that voiceover of, like, how the pit bosses work and how they watch this and that and, like, everything that happens. Like, that shit's great. Like, that is stuff that entertains me while I'm on this journey. Like, I don't remember anything from that movie except mm. for, like, those type of things where it's, like, I, like, give me something to care about the world that I'm in. Like, for me nondescript mafia guy double tapping nondescript other mafia guy because they nondescript like them or not like them it it just the, like here's the thing de niro's character acts as like he he's he's the guy who does a bunch of the hits for the mom mm -hmm. not because he's like fucking john wick or something where he's just proficient at killing yeah. he's just the guy willing to do it Nothing about those interactions feel like this is a man to be feared. He's just the man who is tasked with it and right. does it because he likes his job. And, and he completely is. He's the duty-bound guy who doesn't care. Like, you don't know if he ever feels anything in this movie, I think. Yeah. And it just, that that was not interesting to me. It, it just wasn't a compelling story. And it wasn't even a person that that, like... You, I don't know, like, um, if you look at, uh, the old dude from Breaking Bad, um, who, like, sort of is, like, Gus Fring's guy and then becomes, like, Walt's sort of dude, right. um, he's in... I, I forget the actor's name, yeah, but I know who you're talking about. He's in Better Call Saul, like, yeah. that guy's great, and sometimes it feels like he doesn't even like doing the stuff, but he does it because he's just good at it and he does it. 
De Niro is not that sort of character. He's not compelling at all in any way whatsoever. <laughs> it, he's just the guy who's doing it, and you're watching it because it's De Niro. He, he doesn't have charisma on his own. And I think that's what this film lacks if you compare it to something like uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. In that, all the fucking characters are charismatic, and you at least like those beat-to-beat moments with, with any of them. But, like, De Niro kills a number of people in, over the course of this film, and... I really don't care <laughs> ever <laughs> when it happens, and I don't think he cares. I don't like it. Just it's it's hard for me to care about anything in this film because none of it feels real, even though it's supposedly based on real life events, right? See, I I feel what I feel from his killing is a a numbing quality, and they did work on me mostly. There, there's one that I won't spoil in particular. That's kind of like a major moment in the film that worked extremely well on me and the way he underplays it to me, it becomes about the gruff guy who doesn't show what he's feeling, but deep down, you know that he's betraying something core about himself. And I, I, I felt like I was reading that into the movie. Um, you, you mentioned casino and I think it's an interesting comparison because casino to me is like the ultimate empty calorie Scorsese movie, right? Where it's like, it's fun from scene to scene but I would say it's like very minor in terms of like, what do I remember or what was it saying about anything, you know? And the Irishman is pulling, it isn't full on vegetables, but like it's way more in that camp where it's like, like I, I was watching, I watched Mean Streets this weekend uh, with Joanna because I was like, I'm going to like catch up on some Scorsese movies just to feel like, you know, complete the whatever. And I couldn't believe early Scorsese, how much he leaned on the soundtrack and tracking shots and stuff like that. Like almost every scene, a song is playing right in old Scorsese movies. Yeah. And the Irishman, I feel like is mostly pretty silent. Like it, it does not have that kind of like pep and flair and like, let's pull the audience from scene to scene and like trick them into feeling like they're having an exciting time. This is very much like you are going to lumber through this life like I did, and you're just going to see it in, like, the cold light of day. And, like, hits are just going to happen without fanfare. They're going to be so sudden. They're going to be violent, but it's not going to linger on the violence in a fun way. It's just going to be like, hey, wife and kids, boom, I killed you. End of, you know, end of scene. Um, And, like, I I think it's an interesting move. It, It is a move of him being more somber, more, like, reflective. And for me, putting it in line with everything else he made, I really like the fact that he did it. Would this ever be the Scorsese movie I, like, throw on to have a party? Like, no, The Departed is obviously <laughs> that movie. Everybody knows that's the, that, that's the most, like, straightforwardly fun Scorsese movie, I think, is The Departed. Um, that's my feeling, at least. Um, <laughs> I won't say what I think about The Departed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, for me, like, he has lots of movies that are just straight-up fun where you have morally compromised characters, and it's challenging but maybe not like uncomfortable challenging more just like a little layer of ickiness that that's him at more tarantino levels and i feel like this is him at much more i'm going to be reflective and i'm going to make you ponder something and i'm going to leave you with an uncomfortable feeling and that is not crowd pleasing in the same way but i'm really happy for it and i think netflix is the right home for this movie because people can watch it they can take their half-hour break in the middle if they have to. And if they stick with it, like you stick with a marathon of the Godfather movies or something, I think you're going to walk away feeling 
feeling things. So, so here's my question for you then as a follow-up to that last statement is you talked about how the beginning of this is a really, really slow burn and it's really once everything starts to come to a head at the end and it's something that like it sort of earns its passage to you. Mm-hmm. Um, if let's pretend that this was this week's Netflix release and we were still reviewing it but you, your schedule was kind of full. You didn't know how much time you had. You knew this was three and a half hours. An hour into it, would you have been like, I don't think I'm going to finish this and bounced? Or would you have powered through on your own, like, on your own volition? Because I feel like when you see a film on Netflix that you're not already super excited to watch... Mm-hmm especially if it's an incredibly long runtime, it's very, very easy to bounce away from that and to suddenly go and like, you know what? I don't really... Like, there there have been things I've seen in theaters where I was like, man, if I wasn't like dead center and I wasn't going to have to make like 17 people get up, I would probably just bounce out right now because yep. I'm too old for this shit. Um, so I do think I would not have done well with this movie on Netflix because I... Lately, I've had trouble unless I like put my phone in another room or something. Yeah, of being just a hundred percent absorbed in a movie. Yeah, yeah. But I am a goddamn stickler for finishing a movie I start. So yeah, yeah. I would have finished this movie no matter what. <laughs> Even sitting at home on Netflix, I wouldn't have given up on it. I would have like kept watching and powered through. Yeah. But I I agree the theatrical experience is better. I just don't think a three and a half hour movie is gonna kick ass in theaters right now. So I'm glad like the world can watch it on whatever time frame works for them. Yeah. But yeah, I, I wouldn't have given up. I don't know that people would have too, because again, like I can't hammer this enough. Like early Scorsese tried your patience a little bit. Like he was not always just giving you what you want all the time. too. Yeah. So I feel like his cachet makes people at least sit through and be like, Hey, maybe something is going to happen that I haven't anticipated yet and give it kind of the benefit of the doubt. And that is really like a privilege that he has that a lot of directors don't have probably. So if he ghost made this film and it was like some made up name attached to it, Mm -hmm. um, like Scottishman, whatever Sheeran, (laughs) um, Sheeran loathing. (laughs) (laughs) If, if, if that was the case, would you have been like, damn, this looks like a cheap knockoff of a Scorsese flick? Or would you have been like, damn, the achievement of this story is so great? I, I mean, like, first, I, I want to say, yes, I would have liked it no matter what, because obviously I think the art stands on its own. But yeah. I can't separate those two things, right? Like, yeah, I'm yeah. watching this as, like, what if I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and didn't know it was Tarantino? Like... I don't know. It would kind of feel like a knockoff of Tarantino where they're not getting the point fast enough. Like, yeah, yeah. But the knowing what it is makes you watch it differently, right? Yeah, yeah. And I watched this movie kind of savoring it in a way that maybe I wouldn't if I was like, oh, what is this direct-to-Netflix no-name director's thing? And it's not fair. But yeah, I, I do think I watched it differently knowing it's Scorsese and knowing it's commenting on the rest of his career. Yeah, yeah. But I can't unknow that. So, fuck, yeah, 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 I really liked it. <laughs> Touche, Stephen. Yep. Touche. <laughs> um, yeah, so should we get to verdicts? Sure. Stephen Miller, if you're going to give us a must-see, record with a caveat, wait for until pass with a caveat or a must-avoid, what would you give it? I gotta say, it is what it is. Must-see. <laughs> 
Um, I am going to give it a pass to the caveat. <laughs> um, I did not enjoy this film. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it is what it is. <laughs> that That's up there with Tony telling Raph Sifaretta to kill somebody without ever saying to kill him in, like, awkward mafia side speak, I feel like. <laughs> Let him know it is what it is. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> it is. Um, but, yeah, so that is going to be our review of The Irishman. Uh, Stephen Miller, if people want to find you throughout the week, where can they do that? If you want to paint my house, you can go to twitter.com slash sdavidmiller or sdavidmiller.com. Uh, I would like you not to paint my house. Um, but, uh, for anything else, you can find me at ChristopherInRealLife.com or Twitter.com slash ChristopherIRL. You can find the podcast over at TheSpoilerWarning.com where you can get a bunch of the back episodes of the show. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can do so in Overcast, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever podcasts are found. If you want to know when the episodes go live, you can follow it at Twitter.com slash SpoilerWarning, Facebook.com slash TheSpoilerWarning, or Instagram.com slash TheSpoilerWarning. If you want to get a hold of us directly, you can send an email to fans at TheSpoilerWarning.com, or you can use the contact form on our site. Music for this episode will come from the soundtrack to The Irishman, so hopefully you are enjoying that. And uh, yeah, we are going to take off... Uh, Steven's going to be doing some traveling uh, coming up um, but uh, yeah as we joked about after our span of all the episodes coming out yep. of Toronto International Film Festival we jumped a bunch of stuff and now we're going to have a kind of a spotty thing for the next few weeks but uh, we then we're going to be hit, heading into Christmas yeah. with like everything that we haven't seen this year yet yep. so there will be plenty of things coming your way so look forward to those episodes and uh, we will see you next time see ya bye